Welcome to Let's Talk About Gay Stuff. We're the podcast where we talk about gay stuff and discuss the week in LGBTQ history. We are Thomas. Tony. Kendall. And this week we're reviewing the week of June the 14th through the 20th, and we're going to discuss The Queen, uh, the documentary, uh, George H.W. Bush, and the Sixth International Conference on AIDS Drama, and Craig Wardell. What a week. Uh, We'll start off with a happy birthday to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. No, anyone? Mm-hmm. No, just kidding. That's all. Not even Melania. Not even Melania. Did she? Oh, I, I did read that. Um, basically, she didn't want to go to the White House. Didn't want you know. I mean, when he said, "I want to run for president," she's like, "Oh, you can definitely win. You should do it." But she didn't want to like move to the White House, go through all the. So she was like, "Well, I'm uh, renegotiating renegotiating my prenup." Uh what? So she used the move to the White House to be like, I'm renegotiating the prenup because I didn't sign up for this. Whoa. I good for her. I'm like, that. good for her. I'm telling you, she's uh, they're noting her as a feminist, saying I'm not. Mm-hmm. But she's I like, fuck you, bitch. I don't know. That's overplayed. If you're wondering uh, today. But she doesn't even work within the home, so. <laughs> so she's well, looking home, at that every day isn't work. People like fuck. anti-feminists are like. We want to work in the home. So I don't know what you would call her. Yeah, I don't she's know. Gonna work in the home or out of it. Well, she's saying she's not. She's not anti-feminist. She is a feminist. I don't know. Anyways, um, enough about that, man. Uh, we are recording today, June the fourteenth. So in our first episode, real live time episode. It's real time. That's the word I was looking for. Episode. So we are <laughs> releasing this on June the fourteenth. We are recording June the fourteenth. We're meeting our contractual obligation to get this out every Sunday. <laughs> not really contractual, our, our commitment to the folks that listen to us every week. So it is a bit delayed, but uh, we were ex- exercising precaution. Uh, Kendall uh, went out to um, to go exercise his right, his voice, and, you know, I, I wouldn't say on behalf of all of us, but I guess so, uh, to, to, he was part of the protests that uh, were happening a few weeks ago, and out of abundance of caution, we were... Um, still just, happening, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that are still happening. Yeah. We, um, we are, we were exercising a kind of a, I won't say a lockdown, but quarantining uh, type thing, just to make sure every, he was safe, and we were all safe, he so... like, yeah, the virus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't you could have sent flowers. Thing. <laughs> but uh, obviously, a lot's going on. I mean, you know, Kendall, like, oh, you, did he die? No. Oh, okay. You, <laughs> he looks the same. Though. You went out there uh, in Houston, uh, marching with folks. How? Well, what, what was that experience like? Well, I wanted to show my support, and I also wanted to see for myself because a lot of the news that I see looks very suspicious about the types of people looting and the types of people. And the one you they went look like to suburban several white days kids, into most of them. <laughs> There were several days of protests before the one you went to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I went, it was the one where there was estimated 60,000 because George Floyd is from here in Houston. Right. So it was, um, or, this was an organized protest. And, and a lot of city officials yeah, and city, elected like officials the, the, spoke. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. The police department. The police mayor. chief was marching and taking pictures with a million people. But until there's actual change, I don't believe these at all. And apparently ops. he has a very mixed record because he used to work yes. in Austin and apparently had a really rough not a good record there. Well, I'm not impressed with the cops kneeling. Like, get up. Now what are you going to do? Yeah. Like, what's the real change? Yeah, I know. I think it, it's definitely uh, um, some, uh, there's, it, you know, we've had this conversation on, on the air. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I am conflicted now. I mean, I've always been conflicted about the, the role the police department plays. But it is definitely something that, um, um, you know, when it's, I don't want to say it's new. It's just like, okay, what are we really doing? I mean, the reason the protesters and riots are out 
are out there happening, it's because we're, the system is broken, right? Uh, it's long been broken. And I think that's been my uh, apathy, or not apathy, but just my take on this. It's like, well, so what's going to happen now? Yeah. Like, what different is, is this going to do? So, And it's hard. I've read like several articles that just say police just have so much power legally, and it's really hard to change it. Like it's just ingrained in our culture. Oh, yeah. It's ingrained in like the powers that they have that it's like people don't even believe it when you let them know what's really going on. Yeah. But at the protest, what I saw from my own two eyes is people, everyone was very nice to each other. 90% of them had masks. In fact, there were people handing out masks in case you didn't have them. People handing out water, people registering people to vote. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, several people fainted from like heat exhaustion and bam, you have a dozen people there to help them. Immediately. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It just was like a, it wasn't any kind of environment of tension or, you know, looking for a fight. Now, this was at, I was there probably between 3 and 5. What happens at 8, 9 o'clock at night is different. But... Well, because I did read, and I mean, there's a shit ton of, you know, stories depending on where and when, but, like, a lot of the looting, like, a lot of the official protests were actually peaceful. It was, like, later that they turned violent or... You know, it was interesting for the images from the Houston protest that you went to, Kendall. It's like, uh, and I, I've seen them on when I was doing a bike ride before. It's a it's a group of uh, of black horse riders, right? And so mm-hmm. they're uh, they're out there. So oh, they, they were there. Yeah. So they came up and, but it was that image of them on their horse horses that coming up like on a hill there in um, Discovery Green Park and. You know, that was the image that's coming out of, like, this protest movement, which I, I think was actually interesting and powerful, and it wasn't violent. But And you contrast that with the, you know, the folks who were protesting for masks, you know, that they or they, that they didn't want to have to wear their masks, or they wanted to go, you know, the nail salons open where they were holding guns and all that sort of stuff. To yeah. me, it was just a stark contrast. But I think some of that gets lost. I mean, I, I feel... Like the folks that you're trying to convince that, you know, black lives matter, those folks don't see that difference. They don't see that contrast. And it's disappointing because there's a lot. I think there has been a lot of progress that has been made with uh, result of the the protests and and even the riots. Uh, It got people's attention. Right. And one thing my dad and my my grandmother said, my grandmother's in her 80s. Uh, she's like it's it's different. And my grandmother was you know, an adult uh, in the '60s. My dad would have been like eight or nine when the the big movements were happening uh, in the '60s. And he's like, the difference is you see more white people out there. Yeah. He's like, this is uh, there yeah. are white people out there. He's like, so what's different? He's asking himself. My grandmother's asking, like, I don't know what's different about it, but it feels different. It looks different. Um, and I think it was the video. Yeah, specifically of up close video, and it's see the cop. And it's a human life, and it wasn't similar to what happened here in Houston with the guy in the Denny's parking lot. It was minutes long. Yeah. Like, he sat there for and pleading for help, and I can't breathe, and I'll do whatever you want. And, and bystanders begging him, like, you're killing him, you're going to kill him. Yeah. And the guy ignoring everyone. And when he was crying for his mom, I yeah. mean, what adult male is going to be, like, crying for their mom unless it's, like, well, Dave, yeah. Dave Chappelle just re- uh, released something on Netflix, and that was kind of in the first few minutes of what he's talking about. He's like, he's he's talking about his own experience in an earthquake in Los Angeles. He was like, it was 32 seconds, and he was like, I've never yelled out in, in, in fear because I didn't want to do that. Like, I didn't want to admit that to myself. He's like, but in my head, I, I knew that. He's like, 
Um, but I think he said he did wind up yelling out in, in fear. He's like, and that was, the, well, no, he didn't. But he's like, that was in 32 seconds of that earthquake. This guy was on the ground with a knee. Nine minutes. For nearly nine minutes. Yeah. And they're like, uh, how does that happen? And I, I didn't see much more of the show than that. But it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's just insane. Um, what will happen differently? I mean, I, I don't know. I will say my experience with the protests, I, I didn't go to them. Uh, but as I was doing my nightly walk, um, they were walking, the protesters were walking in, in the neighborhood I'm in. So they were right in, a block away from, from the apartment. And so I clearly saw them. <clears throat> they were actually going parallel with the route that I, I was on. And so helicopters, 10, 12 police cars just running, you know, racing down these small little city blocks which I thought was interesting because they were peaceful. They were just, I yep. mean, they were chanting. Uh, they were walking in peace. There was no violence. The only thing that freaked me out about the protests is there was a, a, a white man and a white truck with his windows rolled down, just cruising very slowly. And I said revelry music, but it was very much like a like Trump a bugle, like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so it was so Creepy. creepy yeah like what and is then, he doing and he saw me and i saw him and then he kind of sped up like and again we're in a city block so it's not like there's a heavy traffic yeah. so the speed limit there is 30 miles 25 miles an hour and he sped up to the stop sign which is where the protesters were and that's kind of when my heart started beating quickly because i was like oh is he shit, gonna yeah like, is he gonna run run through them so he passed them but it was still and i went up to a police officer like hey i don't know what's going on any protester i saw i was kind of um letting them know i'm like you got to keep an eye out for the you know folks because that was probably the the oddest thing i saw about the protest because the protesters were peaceful but there were a lot of characters some white some not white that were that did look a little shady about like yeah waiting to for someone to cause trouble so that they can kind of get involved yeah. in that so um, well at the the protest I got near the cops, like where most of them were stationed behind barricades. Nobody was really even protesting them. They were just doing their own thing. But I could hear all the radio traffic, and one of them said, there's a uh, lookout for a white man with an AR on the block of oh, so-and-so. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. One thing that gives me hope that maybe there will be some change, and it may be lasting, is like, you have the NFL speaking out and saying maybe we were wrong about NASCAR. You know, NASCAR. NASCAR getting rid of it, which I th- I never thought any of this would happen under Trump, but NASCAR doing that, and then even UT's football team is saying, no, we're calling for change here. Even you know their fight song, like you know, and so um, when you have people like that, because I mean, not to stereotype, but I would imagine you know UT's football team, it's male. It's, you know, probably a lot of them are like in fraternities and stuff like that. And a lot of them are white, probably upper, you know, middle class. And so if they're calling for change where it's like, no, we're going to demand the school do something. um, Actually, I don't know the demo. It would be interesting to look at that roster because, you know, I was thinking the exact opposite, that a lot of them are African-American who are like. A a good portion, but a good portion are white. And I. To play for you, then you better. And I would say. And I don't know, this is just my own gut feeling, but it is mixed. And if you're, you know, black, you might think, I'm just happy to have a spot on this, you know, football team because you're probably getting a full ride to college and stuff. Um, you might be less likely to speak out than... I, it just makes me think the white people have to be involved too, yeah. like the white football yeah. players. Like, So hopefully stuff like that where it's like, wow, 
a football team is speaking out, maybe yeah. there will be. Well, this is the thing that I would always say. I mean, and Kendall and I have had this discussion before about like a city like San Antonio, majority Hispanic. And I'm like, you can be, you can in numbers be the minority, but the, the folks that are still in power are white folks. Yeah. Even if you have a Hispanic mayor. Yeah. It's like Barack Obama when he was president. White people were still in power. Just because he was the president yep. doesn't mean black people were running right. the country. It meant that. You know, we had a, you know, someone who was African-American who was able to uh, be in the leadership role, but white people still run the country. Yeah. I, I mean, they're still the ones with power. They're still the ones with money. Uh, and, yeah, uh, it, it's interesting, though, just reflecting on all this stuff. The one thing that is surprising but not to me is uh, looking. So for, for Pride Month, our, our podcast is putting out quotes from African-American uh, LGBTQ um, pioneers and you know you read some of those quotes and they you know, they were said or written 40 50 years ago and they're still they still ring true today in terms of inequality the 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 systemic racism discrimination um, and it's it's just it's sad that we're still in this place 40 50 years later crazy and you know it's it's and I mean to me it's 150 years after slavery or about even more and it's like and I mean, how much have we inched the ball? Right. You know, in 150 years. And it's and it's not. This is not an all lives matter statement, but it's. I mean, you see it in African American communities. You see it in the LGBT community. You see it in his Hispanic community. I mean, what were we talking about last year was kids in cages, right? Where yeah. no one just cared. That's just something we accepted. And the African or the LGBT community, where you know the Trump administration is rolling back, you know, things that the Obama administration and yep. even the Bush administration put in place. And so. This is still. They passed a platform, 2020 platform where they don't agree with same-sex marriage. Right. Yeah. So it's it's. They're still fighting against same-sex marriage. Freaking bananas! And you know, while I, uh, my, in my mind, while I'm not, you know, walking alongside the protest, what I'm committing to is making sure I can get as many people within my network because I, I feel like it's one thing to go knock on doors, but if I can't get my own family and friends to vote, then that's thing. Yeah. So. In 2018, I was hard pressed on like making sure my mom, dad, and sister voted. I'm expanding that circle to make sure folks go vote? out and vote. Yeah, and they all did. And they all, I made them send me a selfie with their eyeballs. Oh my God. They were like, "Okay, we're gonna vote." I'm like, "You need to vote." So, um, similar thing. I like, I, I need to make sure it's not just you know being part of an organization. And you know, I'm involved in stuff. You, you, I mean, we all are involved in different things. But um, I'm like, I gotta affect the people that that. I talk to every day. Um, That's why I hope people keep passion because it's, it's one thing to like get pissed off and do these protests. And then after, even if it's several weeks, it's like, okay. And forget about it. But you know, hopefully a lot of that passion translates into like work. Cause I mean, you know, it takes forever and stuff, but it it's so long, but yeah, like even if you can just vote or, get involved whatever yeah i think that's that's the key i mean and that you look at a lot of the the african-american leaders back in the 60s they're like we can be angry but the one thing i think it was james baldwin which you you sent me kendall um it's like we no actually it was bayard rustin it was like we can do once we uh, get civil rights this was in the 60s like it's it's not a civil rights issue people can see the lynchings that they saw in the 50s which my grandmother was saying oh yeah that happened often in pasadena texas she's like that was just something that happened and I was like, wow. They think um, it happened to a guy in L.A. like this mm-hmm. this weekend. But so, yeah. and, and it was just readily accepted. So, But uh, the, the, uh, 
they were saying is like once you get past that and you get voting access right because they we've had voting they African Americans have had the right to vote they just were barred against with mm-hmm. because of poll taxes and all sorts of other things once you get past that once you get uh, discrimination laws in place uh, which happened in the sixties then it's not a let's get them equal it's an economic issue which is a harder story to tell and yep. that's why you, like you can protest but if you're not if you're just angry without any purpose, without any list of demands and reason to get people to go vote, then it's going to be a lost yeah. effort. Yeah, because so, you need both. They yeah. need to work, yeah. Yeah, so the anger it, you know, gets people's attention, and then, yeah, we got to go vote. we got to go make sure things happen. And, you know, this president that's in place right now, that he's no longer in office this time next year. Hopefully. Uh, so go vote. I don't know. We had another topic, but I think this is <laughs> this this gets us. Uh, 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 I don't know. It gets my blood boiling. Um, hopefully, something will come out of this. So, and we're starting to see some of that already. Uh, I, I will say, you know, Tony, we've had this discussion though, not to uh, prolong this topic, but we've had the discussion about the you know the police department. I mean, I, this whole concept of like defund the police is coming out. I mean, I, I think in terms of the election piece that that you know, that giving the Republicans they're already starting to to latch onto that and say oh, and yeah, I mean, like I shared with Kendra, there's um, an anti NFL group, you yeah. know, that's like oh f the NFL if they're going to support kneeling, right. so it, it's a lot of this is going to be controversial yeah. and like in motivate people on both sides. Yeah. Like you're telling people get out to vote. Well, their side is like. Get out to vote because yep. they hate the cops and they <laughs> hate the American you. flag and like. But I think there's some fundament. When I hear the the thing, my initial reaction and like defund the police is very like jarring uh, because it's like again I go back to they they serve a role to protect. But when I start to hear back when people are talking about and I say this because this is coming up a lot and it's like it's not totally wiping out the police. It is yes. blowing up the system. Yeah. But there's still a role for police officers to you know prevent crime to keep us safe well part yep. of the thing is we've emboldened them and militarized them so much and given them so much power to to be the executioner if they decided yeah. jury judge that executioner, we've right. given them so much responsibility yep. without any repercussions part of this defund the police is saying okay there's too much on your plate yeah and we've allowed you to run too wild right. too long yeah and partly that's our fault yeah and, yeah. and i would so, say you know because part of this is you don't deal with mental health issues, right? Like if somebody that you're interacting with has mental health, you call and it's like, I would say a, well, for one, it's not a crime to be mentally ill, right? No. So if you're walking through the street because you're confused because you have a mental illness or even might have a mental illness, they're not trained to deal with non crimes, right? Yeah. So their instinct is I'm here to get someone off the street. Yeah. So, that whole escalation of someone that's already confused and doesn't understand, and it leads to uh, verbal commands, to tasing, to nightstick, to gun. Yeah. It's like none of that needed to happen. Yeah. Right. And, the, you know, like, those are the tools in their toolbox, right? A nightstick, a taser, and a gun versus a mental health professional. Right. It's like, 
you know, I know all these questions to ask. I know, you know, various things. Yeah. And that's when you even the the what what Trump calls and Fox News calls what the the group of four or whatever the the I mean the, the House senators, them, yeah. but uh, um, Ilmar. Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Uh, I forget but the, yeah, I heard her on it. She's like, we're not saying you we're not going to have a role for police officers to play the squad. Yeah, uh, to, to per- serve and protect. He's like, we just need to invest the money differently to say. Well, some people are though. Some people are saying get rid of it completely. And that's getting combined with defund the police. And it makes it really easy for Republicans to say, oh, so their answer is to have zero police. And that's why a lot of people who are for this are like, change the name from defunding because it sounds like abolishing. And again, I go back to, though, even those extreme people that are the face of the uber liberals, you know, uh, socialists, AOC, uh, Rep. Ilmar, uh, those folks are not saying you know, we don't have a role for police officers to serve and protect. Should be demilitarized the police. We just need to fund it differently, yeah. and uh, we need to allocate resources differently for mental health, for uh, community building, and and that's not what the. I mean, we've overburdened the police department. So Newark yeah. did it, and yeah, drastic and drastically improved. And, and I say that because you know I feel if anyone's listening, and if anyone. Oh, Hopefully not looks, but it does take away uh, nuggets of info for us. It's like, do your research. Uh, defund the police doesn't mean, I mean, the, Joe Biden is not running for on a platform to, you know, totally get rid of police. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. How do we allocate money? Yeah. To- and I would say, you know, I do feel like anytime there's culture involved, it is so hard to change culture and it takes decades. For example, slavery ended 150 years ago. We had you know, civil rights take place in the 50s and 60s, and look where we are today. So cause I thought about this actually on my way over here, because a lot of times when I go through very quiet neighborhood, but it's right next to the police station to get here, I would say nine out of 10 cops run the stop sign by that church. And I will literally be like, if I don't jam on my brakes... Because you're on a bicycle. Yes. If I don't jam on my brakes, you are good. Like, if I was a car, they would T-bone me and it would be 100% their fault because they ran a stop sign. But I think what they do is, you know, in a 25 mile an hour zone, they're probably going 35. They slow down to about 20 and look and it's like, if there's not a car coming, they go and it's like, they make me stop. And, you know, we technically, we don't enforce it, but Texas has the like, you know, you can't be on your cell phone and like school zones. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's like, implies you shouldn't be on yourself and cops are always yep. on their cell phones and t- so today i was going through major intersection at houston and whatever the side street was and a cop just it's slow sunday morning blew through the red light yeah you know and it's like it's things like that where it's if you're above the law running a red light you're also above the law questioning should i murder this guy or you know taste him there's no accountability for even the small things yeah and so that's where it's like culturally you know getting them to believe they're not above the law is which goes beyond it's even bigger issue than just race because we have a police corruption problem that affects all communities that disproportionately affects the yeah yeah yeah. minority communities but they're doing it they choose to let people that look like me off more often but there's a lot of corruption and there's a lot of supposed good cops not saying anything and turning their head, which to me, those are bad cops. Yeah, which has happened. I mean, there's a stat that, you know, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, there was a column that's 
been popular lately because it's like there's all these statistics that say hey there's not a systemic issue in the police department systemic racism but at the same time that the last paragraph of that article says yeah but we need to train more and we shouldn't have practices like that so you are there's a couple of things that I, I see issues with that like you're acknowledging there's a problem so even despite all these statistics there's still an issue that needs yeah. to be resolved and the other thing is the statistics are to your point Kendall it they're only as good as we keep them, right? So if we keep garbage statistics where we don't fully report crimes on those two yeah. men who killed that poor right. boy, yeah. uh, not boy, but poor man, because he he's, I guess he was, he was 25 in Georgia. Yeah, or we let certain people uh, go with a warning. Or that white old man in Buffalo who was knocked yeah. over by the police and they claimed it was his fault or even the president uh, said it was probably he did yeah. it on purpose. Like if you're if you're mis uh, providing misleading statistics or false yep. statistics then your your data yeah and it's also where's the check credible. and balance because the Georgia case that happened over a month before those guys were arrested and it's like as soon as the video went viral they arrested Just like them like George Floyd yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Like none of the cops got arrested until it went viral and there's rioting. The only thing that's changed is the video cameras in our cell phones. Yep. Yeah. That's literally it. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to go back to, I said boy. I did not mean in, in any way. Like, I, I, I thought he was younger, but he's 25 or Ahmad, mm, right? Yeah. And so uh, so he was a man. So, uh, That's a grandpa yeah, uh, for Kendall. So, yeah. You know he likes that now? Yeah, he was nearing the end. <laughs> Your criteria. All right. So uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about our topics. But before we do that, how about, uh, um, since we're talking about stressful times, um, we are feeling, no doubt, uh, according to this Gallup poll, of, of feelings of stress, worry, anger, and at the highest levels in over a decade. And, and this was before all this. This was before. This statistics were all before 2020 happened. And while we're growing more and more aware of the effects of stress on our bodies and minds, we may not have considered the effects that our stress can have on our pets. According to a 2019 study, there is a synchronization between stress hormones in humans and their dogs. If you are a dog parent, you probably know that your pup is very good at reading your body language and can quickly pick up on how you're feeling. We were always working to reduce our own stress in any way we can, uh, but what about any anxiety we may have passed on to our dogs? Baked Bones has a solution. CBD has been shown to help reduce uh, stress and anxiety in both humans and dogs, and Baked Bones has your dog covered. Made from organic, human-grade ingredients, and full-spectrum hemp oil, their bones may offer some relief to your anxious pup. Check out BakedBones.com for more information on CBD for dogs and the other benefits it may provide. Baked Bones offers free shipping on all orders over $25, and you can save 10% using the promo code GAYSTUFF10. That's G-A-Y-S-T-U-F-F-1-0. Baked Bones is LGBTQ-owned and operated and is based in Houston, Texas. Baked Bones proudly donates 10% of all the profits to no-kill shelters in the U.S. Baked Bones. Love me some Baked Bones. Yep. They are amazing. And so, like I've said before, um, you know, my dog has anxiety. I've had him for like 10 years. And so I have friends that comment like, wow, how much calmer he is. But I got, um, a bag of them gave him my friend Cynthia. Cause she's got a couple of older dogs that mm, kind of creaky a little bit, you know, a little bit of arthritis probably setting. I think they're like 13, 14, but, um, yeah, she said like, if she takes them to the beach, they're way more, she gives them the baked bones to make them a little more spry, yep. you know, they yeah. definitely help Kennedy. So it's anti-inflammatory mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yep, yep, it's good yep. stuff. So, 
Uh, yeah, big bones. I'm all a fan. So I'm waiting for those human grade ingredients uh, or human human version. Apparently, of you can eat them. He was yeah. posting the other day. I'm like, really? He's like, they yeah. look really good. He, yeah, if you follow <laughs> them on Instagram, like you get some of those cool pictures. Uh, of, no, and he did say because he's like, they look good enough to eat or something. And he's like, oh, I eat the or he's like, I try them. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. He said that Chris said they don't have any sugar in them because you can't give that to your dogs yeah. uh but uh Apple like, sauce. You, know, you can add your own little peanut butter yeah or whatever a little jam you want to on yeah that. and there's only like 10 ingredients or something yeah yeah, yeah. all right uh tony you want to talk to us about uh craig Rodell? yes okay so um i'm going to talk about craig uh rodwell today um rodwell. who in my mind should be like a household name within the gay community because he was a really like uh, pr- prominent gay activist back in the days when the whole gay rights movement started. But for some reason, I think we just don't know him by name, I guess, because I know a lot of the stuff that he did, but I didn't know his name. So he uh, he actually passed away this week in 1993, um, pretty early age. He was only 53 and he died of stomach cancer, but did a ton of work. And I, I feel we would not be where we are today without him. I mean, he pretty much started the first, uh, he and a group of like just a couple of other people, uh, started the first pride parade, which was, you know, one year after the Stonewall riots. Um, so, and it's interesting because one of the things I want to touch on is his religious upbringing and how it kind of really made him like a gay activist, I think. Uh, so he was born in Chicago, and he his dad left the family before he was one, and his mom was a single mom with, like, him and his brother, and she really couldn't afford to raise them. So when he was six, the mom gave them up to uh, this Christian science boarding school, and he attended there from age six to 14, and it was a little remote, uh, this school, and you know, he was, he was gay. He, as soon as he hit puberty, he knew he was gay. Um, there was apparently a lot of like, you know, a lot of the boys were messing around at this school, you know, cause they're adolescents. What school is that? I know. Shit, I'm like, send me there. <laughs> Not now. The but school of hard cocks. But it was a very strict school, very religious, um, kind of like not the greatest living conditions, whatever. Um, but one of the things that like really stuck out with him is like, so the pardon pers- the pun. <laughs> The Christian science, they have this motto like truth is power and truth is the greatest good. And so he always just felt, I need to be honest. I need to be truthful. You know, that was from six years old. Like he was taught that. And so when he was a teenager, he basically was interested in one of the adults that worked there. And so he, you know, initiated like, let's, you know, get some action going. And so they did. They hooked up and they got caught. And so... He's, he admitted, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm the one that initiated it. I wanted this. And the authorities and the police were, like, trying to convince him. Because even though it was consensual, because he was a teenager and this guy was over 18, the guy went to prison for five years. Oh. But the, the school and the police were, like, convincing, trying to convince Craig, say that he's the one that initiated it or, you know, got you to do it. And he paid you. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. And he really struggled with why, why would, would they do that? Why would you be trying to just to punish him further? Like, and so he struggled with, but you always tell me to tell the truth and you're doing this. And so that's basically solidified in his mind. And he had this lifelong, the system is wrong and broken. Like the system is corrupt and wrong and broken. So unfortunately it still is. Oh, uh, what, so what, what was the age difference again? 
Uh, I don't know. They just said he was an adult. Gotcha. But yeah. yeah. And but Craig he, was how old? A teenager. Teenager. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't like he was a little boy. I mean, he was. No, I mean, yeah, he boy. was a teenager, and he wanted it, and he. Although you know, we have a. Well, more Kendall's friend, but uh, uh, know someone who had an interaction with someone from the church and his teens, right? And you know, there's this big like. I mean, I was thinking, okay, well, if you're, if I can. This is Donnie. No. Oh, I don't remember. From Louisiana. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, that was all of us. Huh? <laughs> no, it, it was every right. every gay man in Louisiana. No, but it was like a, uh, you know, there's this this element of like, well, he wanted the the the. Kendall's friend, our friend, was, you know, in his teens, 16, 17, I guess, and then, you know, had an, an encounter with a priest. And with so. The hot priest, and he was like, I liked it. It yeah. didn't scar me. I wanted it, and we had it, and it was, to me, it was a consensual relationship. But there's another friend of ours who's like, well, no, I don't agree with that because that's someone in the church that's taking advantage of, of uh, mm. you know. But it's, it's, I mean, if you're a, of your 16 year old boy and you're you're having sex with your 24 year old teacher like or a, yeah. maybe not your teacher will take out yeah, yeah. authority but a 24 year old woman that you met like your neighbor like are you okay i mean is that okay like i don't know i mean if you're my i don't know my thing is if it's consensual and maybe you're you know don't 100 percent have life figured out at 16 naturally but it is consensual and it's not uh, I don't, and he said, I'm the one that went up to him. And, right. I mean, because yeah. I think you're, I mean, I, in that's one a, instance. That's a dangerous zone, though. To... You're not mature enough. But at the same time, I mean, now we're using a very modern lens, right? Which is good in some instance. But, at, you know, back a 100 years ago, you were 16. You were raising a family, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Almost. Was so, it Mary Magdalene or Mary Mother Mary, 13? Yeah. So, I mean. Yeah. Uh, I mean when the spirit got in yeah. her? Like I said. <laughs> And I would say if, if his conviction was, no, no, I wanted this, why would you try to... Yeah, yeah. I just, I think it's, yeah. to me, it's, it, it brought that up just like, well, it, it's a slippery slope. I mean, I think because you don't, um, you don't want someone in power taking advantage of you, right? Yeah. Of young kids. No, and I, I would say that. I mean, you know, this issue aside, you know, power is attractive or yeah. authority is attractive. And you can and convince so. a kid that it's consensual when it's not. Yeah. 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 And I, I say that as a man who's dating someone who's 12 years old. And I would say one thing that I thought of in this instance is if it was a 24-year-old male and a 16-year-old student, would a bunch of male authorities at the school and police be like, oh, ma'am, you try to, like, rake this guy over the coals and say, you know. Well, no. that's a fetish. If it, if it was a girl, you're saying? Yeah, the, like, it, I don't think they, they'd probably be like, way to go, buddy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, look at freaking Jeff Sessions, right? I mean, that was it Jeff? No, 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 no it was not, not Jeff, Jeff Sessions. Sorry, it was not Jeff Sessions. Sorry. Roy. Uh, Roy. Uh, what's his name? Sorry, Jeff Sessions. Not to He's anything nice. Roy Moore in Alabama. Yeah. yeah. Roy. Yeah. 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 Roy Moore yeah. in yeah. Alabama. That. I don't apologize to Jeff Sessions often, but I guess this would be the one time. Well, he's anti-pot. They call him the elf cop. The elf cop. Yes. Anyways. Okay. Uh, so after he left there, he went to public high school, but he went to this uh, Sunday school, this Christian science Sunday school, and they just hammered home that like gay is horrible, gay is horrible, gay is horrible. And he just, he kind of had a conviction. He's like, I'm going to change the way religion thinks. Like this is like, he goes, his thought was, I'm a very like uh, obedient, like, person as far as like god and you know the ways he teaches well, he's a sub because i'm gay that doesn't mean i'm bad he just didn't understand that and so that was kind of another conviction so anyways he um he wanted to he couldn't wait to get to new york where uh greenwich village you know kind of where the gays were and it was acceptable 
And he went to Boston for a bit, but then ended up in New York. He moved there in 1958, and he really wanted to dedicate his life to advocacy work. He, uh, he you know, worked odd jobs to support himself, but from day one, he, uh, you know, organized various protests, so like gays in the military or, you know, if uh, some foreign leader was visiting New York, he would protest UN, and he would organize these. He would, you know, protest the United Nations building where they were because their country is like anti-gay or whatever. Um, he joined the Mattachine Society, which we talked about in season one. Hello. hello. (laughs) Shout out to season Um, one. We were so much younger then. Yeah. And one thing that he kind of got frustrated with them because he felt they weren't activist enough. Like he really had a passion for um, activism. He actually founded a couple of, you know, gay organizations. And this is all pre-Stonewall. So there was no kind of like big solidified movement. It was just a bunch of like, you do this, I'll do this, whatever. Um, He was instrumental like he and two other people organized the sip in at julius that you know you talked about in season one um his participation in the stonewall riots he and his boyfriend were walking home one night and they passed the stonewall in and it's right when the rioting started so the police were still outside and everybody's battling it out they hadn't barricaded themselves in yet so he started chanting and encouraging so he didn't wasn't involved in the scuffle but he started chanting and encouraging the you know, the gays to fight against the cops. You know, a bunch of people came and joined in the chant. I mean, some people joined in the fighting. And then uh, the next day, he printed a bunch of flyers and handed them out and was like, let's keep it going. Like, this big riot happened. Let's, you know, keep the movement going, which is interesting. So one of the things he did as an activist for several years, um, he organized a group to go to Independence Hall every 4th of July in Philadelphia and protest America's freedom isn't for everybody because right. the gays aren't included. And so, Hello. Yes. Remember that my 4th of July episode? Oh, yeah. Are you going to bring that? Uh, We're the gonna... most listened to episode. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Check it out. So he, so for it's like. From season one. Yeah. So for five or six <laughs> years, uh, he went there. I knew you'd be passionate about this. Mm-hmm. Chime in. Save it for July 4th. Yeah. <laughs> and so. um After the Stonewall riots, he and a couple other people got together and said, okay. Let's move this. And it was an annual it was an annual reminder of freedom's not, you know, everyone isn't included in our freedom. And so he uh, freedom ain't free. Yeah. So he said, let's um, move this to the anniversary of the Stonewall riots. And that's when he created the first uh, gay pride parade. It was a gay pride march, which is now a parade, but in New York City, um, more of a sachet. Yes. Is that the Christopher Street? A saunter. Uh, Liberation Day. Liberation Day, Day. Yeah. which we talked about also in season one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. See, and that's the thing. We talked about all of this stuff, and I didn't know his name, which is kind of crazy. But I'm sure we've said it. Here's the thing. Just a pause yeah. on this. Cause I, so I'm part of the Greater Houston LGBT Chamber of Commerce, right? And so I, we've been doing all these webinar events uh, uh, to, to continue networking since we can't do it in person. And there's uh, usually at the end of them, we'll do some sort of LGBTQ trivia. Of course, uh, I'm like, you know, there's a great podcast that you can listen to called Let's Talk About Gay Stuff uh, and get all this information. So then I put myself out there as like, 
a knowledgeable resource on all this stuff. And <laughs> so they're always like, so what's the answer, Thomas? And I'm like, I have no idea. I mean, you think about it. We've done 50, stay tuned, stay tuned. 54 episodes, uh, 54, 55 episodes now, I guess as of this one. Uh, and I, I do the, you know, I'm the one kind of coordinating the daily posts for, for our podcast, right? So I have 365 days of information and then our 150 topics that we've discussed. I'm like, there's no way for me to know. So I, I maintain, we're not, like we say on our website, we're not historians, um, but we are you know, retelling the stories or sharing the story. You said it well earlier before when we were t- talking pre a podcast, but we're, we're reviving the stories and that's yeah. not the word, but keeping them alive, um, keeping right? them yeah. alive, resuscitating. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, so I think that's, that's just the distinction I'll say. <laughs> we may not have remembered, we've talked about him, but we may, may not remember his name entirely. So, yeah. Um, so he also, um, in the mid '60s, founded the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, and it was a the first bookshop in the U.S. dedicated to LGBT authors. And um, it was really very, you know, he wanted books that were uh, literary slash supporting the gay rights movement. It wasn't like a, there was no pornography. It was, and it was really a meeting place for activists. And so this is where I feel all of these protests he organized definitely had an impact and we wouldn't be where we are today without them but giving activists a place to convene generate ideas things like that and just community i think other activists wouldn't have done what they had done without this guy so you know he had this bookshop for decades um he also in the 70s he created a gay people in christian science group because as a member of any church of the christian science religion if you were openly gay you could be you know banned from the church Mm -hmm. basically and so he and a group of people would protest their annual meeting and hey you need to include the gays you need to include the gays and they would they protested every year he was very persistent and um actually six years after his death they actually now uh in 1999 they allowed um openly gay members to not be banned from their church which is pretty interesting well well, Um, he did i mean so that was a life mission of his to change the yeah because i mean and he just and i think like those couple of events where he's like wait a minute i'm a good person obeying you told me to be honest now you're trying i think that's where he got his passion for i want to change the system whether it's politics um, one interesting thing, he dated Harvey Milk. That oh, was his yeah. first serious relationship. And interestingly enough, I mean, Harvey Milk is a household name for being openly gay and fighting for gay rights. One of the sources of friction between he and Harvey Milk, they only lasted a couple of years, was Harvey was a little uncomfortable with him being so out and so vocal in his fight for gay Hmm. rights, which is interesting because uh, that was early on when Harvey was probably maybe not even out or starting to come out, which is interesting. But that makes you kind of confront some of your things. I mean, early on uh, when Kendall and I were dating, I mean, he held my hand one time, like, and I think it was even in the car. And I was like, (gasps) that means I'm like, I'm going to be gay. And he's like, what's the big deal? And now fast forward to 2020 when Spence and I are like swinging Holding hands, hands like downtown, skipping downtown, like shit. wearing our rainbow gear. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's Let me get on the next each other. block. What's going on? But here? I, I, I think it, it wearing just, meat bracelets. like I had to like confront that and Kendall like forced yeah. me to do not, not, not in any way that aggressive. He's just like by him being himself. Yeah. I'm like, well, what's wrong with me? And it took, you know, and it makes you wonder to, if this guy wasn't the seed in Harvey Milk's mind mm. that's like, look at him. 
And mm-hmm. even though they didn't work out because they were probably super young, it was Craig's yeah. first serious relationship. If that wasn't motivation and inspiration through Harvey Milk's life to no, look at this guy. He's out in the streets every yeah. day, vocal, grew up very religious, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. But I guess just to kind of wrap up, um, he, while he was still alive, received a literary award from uh, Lambda for the publisher service. In On the 50-year anniversary of Stonewall, they had 50, you know, they honored 50 pioneer trailblazers and heroes that are honored at Stonewall Inn, which is now a monument. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was one of those people that was inaugurated into that, you know, posthumously. Oh, one of my topic people are in that 50. Oh, really? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. So, not um, to make it about me, though. I mean, really, an amazing guy. I think we would definitely not be here where we are today without him. Yeah. Both for what he did and just, you know, like inspiring Harvey Milk, possibly providing a venue for other activists. So, um, yeah, it's, it's folks like that that make me, I mean, rethink. Uh, it's just so funny how so much we're like, oh, no, I'm this way. And then, like, the whole concept of the gay diva, they get, well, I, and when we're doing a post about, like, Diana Ross or Cher, I've tried to balance the icon, the gay icon status with, like, the gay diva status because I was like, icons are so many. And I know there's been some pushback for some time saying, well, Cher's not gay, right? Or Diana yeah. Ross is not gay. Um, but I'm like, they still held the place where gays found a source of inspiration from them. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, and we often say, well, we look to Cher and Diana Ross because we didn't have people to look up to, but yeah. we do. I mean, yeah. and yeah. at the time, in the well, and maybe you didn't in the 60s and 70s because these guys were coming up at the time, right? So we weren't looking up to them. But well, we, we were did. told we couldn't look up to them. Right. I mean, Oscar Wilde, for example, was in hindsight very inspiring. I mean, yeah. that man did what he wanted to do in yeah. the 1800s. And that's why he named his bookstore after him because he wanted somebody, yeah. But they Very were inspiring. so shamed that it was like we couldn't well, was even agree that yeah. they were. And one thing about him, I guess, you know, kind of building on what we had talked about in our Kiki is he just hated police brutality and the way police treated the gays. Because, I mean, walking down the street, if you didn't have the right clothes, they could arrest you. Mm-hmm. And, and he, you know, a lot of gays are just, they cowered down to the police because they didn't want to get arrested. They would either pay him off or I'll move on, whatever. Yeah, because your like, name's in the paper. They would leave the gay bar. And he was like, he was, fuck it. And he would fight them, and he got arrested several times for going down to the docks. Uh, you know, if if they raided a gay bar, he would stand up to the police, and they're like, well, you're going to get arrested, and he would yeah. do it. Like, he... The thing is, too, and I don't know where he was coming from economically, but, I mean, that that speaks to some of the, even within the LGBT community, where you have people of, of a white man who can do that, right? But it's someone who, like Marsha P. Johnson, yeah. didn't have the resources to, to get, get arrested. herself out of jail. Yeah. Right. yeah, but also the flip side of that is the more you have, the less you're willing to gamble at all. Yeah. And that's why I think he is probably in the middle of your two statements right now, because... His mom was so poor, she had to give him up, pretty yeah. much. And so I think when he moved to New York, it was like on his own. And he did odd jobs in order to just make enough money to do advocacy work. So he wasn't like homeless. But to Kendall's point, if he did have an upper, you know, like privilege, upper middle class or privilege, maybe he wouldn't have been. I think he's like, I have nothing to lose. Yeah. Like I was born poor. I've never had anything. As long as I can like put food on the table and a roof over my head this is what I want to do with my life. So he didn't really, 
have a lot to lose, like you said. But there are so many factors that go into why we make certain decisions. He was in San Francisco, which your whole environment is like radical, and there are so many people that look and act like you that are in your gay yeah. community. And I mean, he purposely, you know, moved to Greenwich Village to be part of the gay community and everything like that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, anyways, remarkable guy. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, uh, how about a nice shout out to our sponsor, Economy Works? Are you a small business owner trying to do it all? Take marketing, for example. Nowadays, your business has to have a Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn account. Who has the time to take pictures, write posts, and get them posted online, let alone like, comment, share, and respond to followers? Don't worry. Economy Works is here to help. Let the Economy Works talent network help you do marketing so you can grow your business. Economy works when we work. The economy works. Find out more at economyworks.com. That's E C O N I can spell my company's name. E C O N O M I W O R K S.com. I can't remember who I was talking about or talking to just a week or two ago, but they were commenting on the economy works jingle. I like it. That's good. Mm-hmm. I do. I hear. I hear like people. Like when we work. It was Thomas. Yeah. No, I, it was my. I think it was my friend Andrea. Yeah. It was somebody that. I, I was not podcast. I was doing a speaking of event uh, at at the chamber. I think in uh, Angel. Uh, he, he follows us on Twitter. Uh, he was like, he was there attending. He was like, oh yeah. And it was putting the two together. Like Thomas, the podcast economy works. He's like, I can't think of your company name without saying when we work, the, the economy, economy works. works. I'm like, hey. You know, that's mar- what you want. Marketing, yo. Mm-hmm. Now, if you just the uh, gays love a jingle. Now, if you guys just want to sign up for you know some talent to help do projects, okay, I'm not I'm done peddling. So, what about you, Kendall? What's uh, talk oh, to us? Oh, this is so unexpected. So I'll have to go by memory. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. We like, catch you out anyway. It's okay. <laughs> uh, so my topic is the Queen, a documentary released uh, June seventeenth, nineteen sixty-eight, but it was filmed the year before in nineteen sixty-seven. And it goes behind the scenes of the 1967 Miss All-America Camp pageant in New York City. And I saw this years ago. It kind of had a resurgence um, a few years ago because they re... Whatever the term is to make it like better, remastered, made it better quality. And it's such a fascinating documentary. (laughs) Other than Paris is Burning, this is the most famous drag queen slash maybe even gay documentary throughout history because it's a short one hour documentary but it shows such like a snapshot of the 60s it has issues of race and drag queens and being gay and the draft which was going on at the time and um it's so interesting i rewatched it today just to and there were so many nuances i didn't pick up the other two times i watched it so, and you can actually, even though it was on Netflix for a while and you can rent it, it's free on YouTube. <laughs> oh, get out. So run to YouTube. Yep. Tell them I sent you, boo. <laughs> so this is the Miss All-America uh, Camp Pageant in New York, but these queens have come from all over the country. So you win Little Miss Tuckahoe in <laughs> Tuckahoe. Mississippi and, you know, Miss Roadwell and different Roadwell uh, in, she, you know, she, in Alabama. She rode well. They're all, so many of these pageants, uh, <laughs> contestants had like thick southern accents. So, and they were in the big city of New York and they would have these discussions in the hotel room that were fascinating. Anyway, yeah. we'll get to that. But it's, it follows, the queen is named after the narrator, which is Jack Dorishaw, who's the, the hostess of the pageant. And she organizes all these pageants across the East Coast. 
And she goes by the the drag name Flawless Sabrina, also known as Mother Flawless, or simply the Queen. I love it. <laughs> and her whole shtick as a hostess was, she said, I'm like a bar mitzvah mom, like an like an older, well-to-do, kvitzing grandma. That like, you know, it's actually very smart because she's like, as the hostess, I want to be pretty, but I don't want to make the other girls jealous because, you know, <laughs> these girls, it's got to be all about them. Some <laughs> things never change. Um, Have we told folks about the time, Kendall, you got uh, asked by the, the bar we were at to not take away uh, attention from the talent because you were dancing on people? <laughs> <laughs> there were drag queens <laughs> performing. and he Well, was there like, was an unmemorable uh drag queen performing and i was like oh maybe let me go dance over here and you know so she would pop it on a hand kendall was here. basically following her so as she would go collect dollars from the guests he'd <laughs> oh, like he would follow up wait no a, that was not true do a lap dance i held the other side <laughs> i held the other side like, of the take room. your pants i was off showing respect dance. he wasn't taking money for the record he was just uh, having a good time it was for charity yeah. mm-hmm. the stripper yes so, but, so in the very beginning sabrina aka jack is putting makeup on while he's describing what he's doing and beautiful, you're seeing her put up her makeup on, and then she starts shaving her face. And it's kind of like, this is 1968, and this is the first 30 seconds of the documentary, and people are going to be like, it, it was viewed at Cannes Film Festival. Oh, like, wow. This was a legit documentary. Yep. So to be in 1968, and this, what looks like a beautiful woman just starts shaving her face, <laughs> <laughs> is automatically is like, hold up, what is this documentary? Because they've never seen anything like it before. When the documentary premiered in 1968, it was a felony in most of the country to cross-dress. And Sabrina herself, she said she had been arrested at least 100 times in the 60s for wearing women's clothing. Wow. And when she actually, when the... Where did she live? What state? She was in New York, Manhattan. Uh, When she was promoing the documentary in 1968, she would go in Times Square to tell people about it dressed as a woman and she was arrested twice. Hmm. What, like, why would you, why is that even a law on the Because books? it's all yeah. about control. Just yeah. like with this, the police. And like in San Francisco, it was like if you had two articles of clothing that were the other sex, you could be arrested. If you're going to say marriage is between a man and a woman and a man is not supposed to be and a, and a man is supposed to wear this, then you have to rigidly enforce that. And that means ruining people by arresting people's lives and sending them into... And I also feel like minor things like that were kind of a way for police to harass because, like, as we mm-hmm. talked about, like, in San mm-hmm. Francisco, sometimes they didn't care. Sometimes they're like, pay me off or I can arrest you, yeah. you know? Or blow me. In. Yeah. Oh, what? shit. Hello. HBD hiring? <laughs> so, uh, they are now. Sabrina said the hardest part about organizing the pageant is not only finding a hotel with 28 rooms, but finding a hotel hip enough to give you 28 rooms. In other words, like, we can't just go down to the Massapequa Holiday Inn. You know, like, what we're doing Mm -hmm. is we could all be arrested for this entire group. So it's a struggle just to find a hotel in Manhattan that will take us. I feel like uh, it's so interesting how the like just depending on who you went to. I mean, we talked about the sip in at Julius. Uh, you know, they had to go to a couple of different places because the first two places were like, you know, we don't care. You're like, we're not gonna, we'll serve you. Oh yeah. But but yeah, I mean, you had some pockets where businesses didn't want to do business with you, but other folks knew like, you'll be a loyal. I mean, like people know like any K pop even knows today. Like I've got a loyal fan base. Let me give them some sugar. Well, like, it's like the them. the Green Book. 
that if you were that if you're mm-hmm. black in the '60s, there's a movie based on it. One Oscars like two years ago. You carried a green book, and it told you who would allow you to spend the night, who would allow you to eat in their restaurant, yeah. where you could get gas, because this is going through the deep south. So much wouldn't do it. Yeah, and it was the same to a certain degree for gay people of like, okay, we want to do a pageant, but where can we do it? Yeah. Uh, so not only was it hard to find a hotel with 28 rooms, but to even get the hotel room. And then she said, and it was extra hard to keep the boys in the rooms once we got them. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but one of the first few scenes is they're all meeting Sabrina in her apartment to talk about the beginning of the, how the pageant weekend's going to go. And all these girls are all nervous. They're sizing each other up. And they're trading black and white pictures of each other in drag. It's like it, it's like a little... She even called it a convention, Sabrina. It's like, uh, I'm with my people, finally. Yeah. Yeah. And th- the world outside these doors is super scary. But in here, we I, certainly I'm not going to be judged for putting a wig on. Right. And makeup. I thought it was very interesting. The first drag con. Pretty much. <laughs> um. And then they show them in their rooms with the roommates because you, I think it was two person to a room. And what they talk about, it's so indicative of 1967, but it also humanized them so much. Like there was, they'd be put in rooms, like it's not necessarily if you're white, you're going to get a white roommate. So they showed one um, black contestant, a white contestant, and the white one was like, well, I had heard that black boys, when they shave their face, they get bumps all over them. And I heard that because I read Ebony Magazine. And he was like, mm-hmm. But it was, <laughs> it was so like, girl, we know you're cool with this. Okay, you don't have to prove it. Um, it's a, just a side note. It's sad that, that there are, you know, products are made for either white women or white men. They had been historically. So like razors, they were made a certain way. Like they didn't account for, you know, African-American men, like in the way their hair grows out. So they would get bumps on their, uh, on their, because the razors right. were, were made for white men with straight hair, not curly men, black men with curly hair. The same thing with them. And I, I did learn from Spencer, like makeup, like in the, until recent, until maybe the nineties was all for white women's faces. So I can't imagine what oh, yeah. a drag queen was having. Or band-aids. Yeah. yeah so. Flesh colored band-aids yeah, would so. be like pink. Those band-aids are darker than I am. <laughs> so where do I, mean, I get one lighter? I mean, it's stuff that people don't think about. Oh, you know, yeah. but yeah. it's like the, little these things, products yeah. have been made for white people. Like this is systemic. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and also the, I said black boy in the here. Actually, he said Negro. I remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, which is also yeah. very indicative of 1968. The times, yeah. Um, but when they they get in the rooms and they're showing each other their wigs, and one of them's like, I love the way you teased it out. Of course, they're all like huge 1960s yeah, yeah. wigs. Um, and they start trying on each other's clothes. And this was during the draft for the Vietnam War. Oh, okay. And one of them said, what did she say? Wouldn't this be a hell of a mess if the draft board, draft board were to call us down right now for a physical? <laughs> <laughs> like kind of joking about it. Yeah. Um, and then the other one said, this is what I'm wearing to the draft board. And <laughs> she starts twirling her nightgown with the feather collar. Um, but even when they're talking about this, it's like gallows humor almost to where we're talking about it, but it's scary. Yeah. Um, another one said, why haven't you been drafted? Did you tell him you're homosexual? 
And she said, "No, they told me." So they're <laughs> they're joking about it, but the ser- the the topic is serious and the discussion is yep. serious, and they start talking about it. And one of them says she showed up, and she said they thought because I had dyed my hair red and it was super red and long, they were like, "No," like they're de- being discriminated against because you're gay. You can't even go die for your country. And she said, "I wanted to serve as an American. I wanted to serve, so I wrote the government a letter and said." They wouldn't take me because of this reason, um, but I still want to serve to fight for my country. And the government, this is LBJ's administration, wrote back and said, I understand your desire to serve. This is the way things are now, and perhaps in the future things will be differently. Hmm. Which is like to hear somebody in 1968 say that and to know it took the last president for gays to even be allowed to serve. Yeah. It's like that's a long... Long ass time. Yeah. And, and they also have a long discussion about, would you want to have the surgery? And the, the <laughs> verbiage they use, because now we have so many terms, you know, transsexual means something different, transvestite and transgender and drag queens. They were, the verbiage they were using was always drag queen. Yes, I'm a drag queen, but I don't want to cut it off. Um, I like being a gay man. I remember like one of them was like, I'm, I'm proud to be gay. Like, Well, know. there was one joking that said, I'm proud of what I got, and I want to show it off. He said, if anything, they need to cut two inches off of it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Which automatically, you already know it's very small. <laughs> Just by that <laughs> statement alone. Um, but most of them were saying, no, I don't want the surgery, but it was an option for them. And this was because of our topic... Christine Jorgensen from mm-hmm. the 50s. This was all still relatively new to even be able to have sex reassignment surgery. Also, another thing that struck me is that when they're all trying on being very like flamboyant and over the top, trying on hats and dresses and all that, there was this little Asian seamstress in the room <laughs> that was so like, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. <laughs> and she looked to be... In her 70s, which means she would have been born Aww. in the 1800s. <laughs> and, probably, and it was did like... Did she immigrate from here uh, to the U.S.? Oh, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. I was just trying to remember because... But, and she didn't have much time on the show, but I'm like, you always look for allies. I remember even... Yeah. I mean, I was born in 82, and I remember the time when you're like, am I safe around you? Like, yeah. yeah. Are you going to treat me differently? Are you going to shun me? Are you going to tell people? Are you going to try to ruin my life by outing me if you know I'm gay? So for her to be like, yeah, I'll help you. Yeah, I'll take your money. Yeah, I know this is going towards something that is considered illegal. What do I care? Yeah. Money's, yeah she's taking a risk too. Yeah. Money's money, which is not, I'm not saying that is a bad thing. I'm saying, yeah, yeah. why can't, why do you have to? Yeah. Like put who, judgment right. into everything. Because yeah. I mean, if it's rated and everybody goes to jail, she's right along with him. And also, Sabrina's in the very beginning, actually the first few seconds, Sabrina, the hostess, is on the phone. Yeah, are you coming down tomorrow, darling? Are you coming down tomorrow? Yes? Okay, okay. Oh, well, I love you. Just, I'll see you tomorrow. It winds up being her mom. Oh. <laughs> like, uh, and the mom helps out with the pageants. Okay. But how lucky was Sabrina to have in not the only. 60s? Yes, yes. And not only is it a, your son's gay, but I'm going to dress up. And ask you to sit in the yeah. audience. And not and only help is me. she like supportive, she but was it's there, like I'll be in the trenches with you. The original Gigi Good. Uh, that hey, look, that's me giving a current reference from RuPaul Drag Race. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not familiar with that. Oh, you will. I'm hip to it. 
So they're all getting ready. Kindle's role as the woke one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this very young, new, fishy, as they call it. Oh, look at me now. Look at you. Uh, contestant uh, Richard is what his they called him, but it's, mm-hmm. the drag name is Harlow. What does fishy Whoa. mean? Because I don't think we've talked about that. Fishy means looks con- convincing as a woman. Yep. Oh. Acts very feminine. Um, looks feminine. So how, like would, we need how, would you yeah. how, how would you use that in the sentence? Like she's fish. Um, she's a fishy queen. She's a fishy in other queen. words, she's very feminine. Very, she could yep. pass perhaps if she wanted to. Yep. You know, that's something different. Yep. But anyway, but right before this, uh, Harlow is the drag queen's name. She, her wig is missing, and she's like, "Somebody stole my wig. I'm pissed off at everybody." I know they're trying to sabotage me. And the organizers pretty much were like, yeah, Richard, well, they probably are because you're young and you're pretty and you, the first pageant you ever entered, you won. And they're trying to help her, which is kind of like, you really, I don't know. Are you putting a thumb on the scale? Yeah. But uh, they help her. They get her a wig. One woman gets on the phone and she was like, I have an emergency. And when I say life and death, I mean life. Our death emergency. I need a full platinum blonde wig, full fall. I'm like, <laughs> and then she says again, "Do you hear me? This is emergency." And there's some queens crying in the corner and all that kind of stuff. Oh my god! Um, and then the pageant starts. This is why we got the term drama queen, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, there's full on <laughs> drama the entire hour. Um, so the pageant is modeled after pretty much any true female pageant they have talent evening gown and swimsuit um and the pageant starts and guess who is one of the judges who andy warhol oh nice so this was actually legit yeah and another judge was Edie sedgwick which is a popular socialite slash model at the time who was um andy warhol's muse Mm. okay so this was considered a legit Pageant. I can't imagine going to this pageant. Like, it would have been so... As a contestant, you mean? Well, no, oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, just, like, attending. Like, I can imagine. I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm... I've seen the documentary, but I'm sure I'm, like, fantasizing. But it seems so fantastical and magical, mm-hmm. like this, you know, everything that was going into it. Just... And lots of drugs, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and it was very in- indicative, of, indicative of its time. And actually, the way drag was for many, many decades is that they were emulating what they saw on television. So drag is never, they were never truly stereotypically being their mom or their grandma, maybe some mannerisms, but they're being these over the top cinema queens that, um, who would it be? Maybe Marilyn Monroe and Greta Garbo and even some Betty Davis, like all these women that weren't even acting like real average women in the movies. It was all a fantasy. Mm -hmm. Judy Garland. Yeah. Um, so the pageant starts and they announce five finalists and it includes Harlow and invo- involve, includes a woman named Crystal LaBeja. Crystal LaBeja. And there are many arguments that the only reason we're talking about this whole documentary, that we remember it, is because of the last 10 minutes of the entire documentary where Crystal LaBeja acts out because she's named third runner-up and she is pissed. You can see on the... <laughs> As soon as she announced, you can read her lips, and she says, oh, my God. And she starts, like, stumbling around, and she's so angry. 
And uh, before they announced the other two, the winner and the first runner up. Yes, she announces third runner up, and then they announce second runner up, and then after second runner up, and she's over there mumbling, she just walks off the stage. <laughs> over it. And Sabrina says, "Crystal, where are we going? This is not the time to show temperament." <laughs> but even the way the drag queens talked were like 1930s, yeah, yeah. 1940s movies. This is not the time to show temperament. What are you doing? Like so over the top and ridiculous. But she's had it because she thinks it's rigged for Harlow. Yeah. She's probably the one that stole her wig. Uh. <laughs> and then, of course, Harlow has announced the winner. Um, <coughs> it came down between her and him. She appeared to be, I mean, this is like the, she appeared to be black or hispanic but um the whole controversy was who's this young girl and she just looks this is rigged because sabrina likes her and of course she is their definition of pretty um and in the backstage after the pageant crystal labasia is screaming she's not even beautiful i'm beautiful darling and everything is just like she's screaming and what she's saying is she's like none of you people will ever think I'm anything but ugly at one point she says what's saying is I'm not part of your beauty ideal which is true you know she comes up one of them said you my only advice is if you come out in a dress at least uh, dry clean it <laughs> you know and Crystal was like and look at that wig and look at that makeup that's not beauty this is beauty but what she's saying is I don't have a place in pageants like this because it's always going to go to people like you which is like what mm. I mean. There's some racial uh, undertones there, huh? Yes, correct. Right, because Crystal Labeja is black. Yes, and, and and Harlow is a blonde-haired, very petite, young, the American ideal of beauty. And Crystal is basically saying, "How can I compete against that?" Yeah. Um, and there's a big argument in the hall, and this was in 1967. By 1972, Crystal had quit the pageant system. Because she was like, this isn't, it's not fair to me. You know, they don't see my worth and my beauty. In 1977, she founded the House of LaBeja, <laughs> which went on to be like uh, in the ballroom culture, which we've talked about before. And the House of LaBeja went out to be one of the top, most successful New York ballroom houses. It was actually on Paris's Burning. Season is, one. It, which is probably the most famous, definitely the most famous drag queen documentary. But it's interesting how she and Crystal was on that list of 50 most influential LGBT people. Oh, wow. Yeah, that you had mentioned in your topic. Get out. So she feels the documentary, The Queen, to me, this is my take. She brought the drama. We're talking about it so much so because of what she called out and the way she acted. Mm-hmm. That documentary, in a sense, had so much to do about her. She called out the system. She left it and went to yeah. a bigger scene that we're talking even more about that influences RuPaul's Drag Race in a way that yeah. the Queen doesn't necessarily. It's it's almost like a story of making it her own. But I read an article today in doing research that made so much sense. Um, she said it really showed the difference between black and white drag at the time, and maybe even now, is that white drag was doing cinema. So you were doing movie goddess, which is very like soft and, you know, mm-hmm. poses and not too over the top and kind of contained. And black drag queens are doing theater, <laughs> which is a different connotation. 
it's performing for the back row. It's theatricality. It's like over the top. Oh, okay, yeah. Nobody was doing over the top in the movies that they were emulating. Um, and if you're a pageant is geared towards the cinema style of drag, but you come from theater, you're not going to ever going to win. Yeah, yeah. You know, and she was saying, I've shut out of this entire system. But she was on the head last laugh because LaBeja, Aja on one of the RuPaul's Drag Race All-Star seasons um, performed her in Snatch Game, Crystal LaBeja. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, who was on a documentary from 1968 for 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Right. Um, that's a legacy darling because nobody's doing Sabrina. Yeah. I was like, I've never even heard of Sabrina. Uh Crystal died in 1982 of liver failure. And Sabrina kind of gave up drag hosting and organizing, but she lived to 2017. And she was a legend in her own right. She, lived in, she went back to Philadelphia, um, or moved to Philadelphia, I should say, and was a legend. But they always said we, don't, we never really knew who she was. But when she died, there were all these articles about the mm. impact she had and even the winner Harlow on an interview in 2015 was like she changed people's lives because she gave them a platform to like put on a dress and go stand on a stage and yeah do that as like a legit competition where people were going to see them as talent she was like she probably saved many many lives just by doing that yeah uh Harlow the winner had sex reassignment surgery not long after that and then moved to back to Philadelphia. That's actually where she was from and kind of has been under the radar since, but she's still alive. So to think that these, when you watch the documentary, it's like barely it's color television just started come to the fore. Cause there was years where like color was there, but they weren't really using it because it was expensive and nobody owned it. This is like, it's barely color documentary. Yeah. Like I said, they're passing black and white, photos and they're talking about the draft and they're saying i i heard that negro boys do this and you know such like a time capsule and to think that many of them are still alive is crazy yeah that's how close we are to our history that it was just like yeah it's our parents age yeah mm-hmm. and they're still shuffling around this earth some of them the <laughs> lgbtq yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but it's very good i think Everyone should watch it just for the gay history aspect alone. But the biggest takeaway for me, or the most compelling part, is that they have to be in... And what platform is this on? Where did you watch it? You YouTube, for free. Oh, YouTube, yeah. right. But yeah. you can buy it somewhere if, you, if you're so, you know, inclined to do that. Yeah. Um, but they, these people come alive when they're behind closed doors. That's where they feel safe. Yeah. Like co-conspirators almost. Yeah. Um, and they don't even the Sabrina, the organizer is like, it's hard enough getting a hotel that accepts us. So really, I mean, when you're walking down to the hall mm-hmm. from the room dressed as a woman, it's like, you're always on edge, but here in this moment, they're allowed to be themselves. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That, like you would live your like whole life like that. It's still yeah. that way for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, it's crazy how like I mean I know the it was there's a bigger story than just drag culture, but I mean like drag queens they were this fringe thing and this I mean you're talking how unique and rare the storytelling was, but then to come into like the '90s when these pop divas started embracing this drag culture and being inspired by Madonna and Vogue, mm-hmm. and then you look at some of these stars now, a Lady Gaga, like I think they find inspiration from drag queens in terms of what they're doing, their looks and being over the top and not yeah. caring, and uh, I think that's that's cool i mean in terms of how the the drag culture has evolved and is continuing to evolve and serve as inspiration for folks i mean rupaul's drag race i know rupaul gets a lot of slack for a variety of things but i mean really brought that culture into mainstream Mainstream and not just a madonna's you know uh appropriating it with vogue which i don't i use that somewhat jokingly but um but in a way that you know people you have women who want to dress in drag right and those sorts of things Mm -hmm. so um i think it's cool i mean uh but yeah very powerful uh story there so cool very good. Uh, all right. So uh, uh, how about I bring us home with uh, this last uh, topic here? So this week in June uh, 20th, 1990, uh, President George H.W. Bush uh, got some sl- uh, flack for declining an invitation to attend the 6th International Conference on AIDS. Uh, rather, he decided to attend a fundraiser for Jesse Helms in Charlotte um, on, on the day the conference opened. So this 6th International Conference on AIDS opened up on June the 20th and will last uh, a few more days. Uh, but opening day, like I said, and, you know, he was um, George H. W. Bush was invited and decided not to go. Uh, so what's happening in 1990? So on the AIDS front, you've got um, you know AIDS was still a a um, a, a, a killer in for yeah. the LGBT community. I mean, it wasn't despite some reports saying it was leveling off the the number of cases, it was not leveling off. And, there and was for a, the people that were kind of surviving it, it was like horrible cocktail of drugs that had yeah. so many side effects right. that were hard on you. Yeah. So there was this frustration that the government was moving slowly, that you were, I mean, having to go through horrible treatments. If, if, and the it, treatments yeah. out there were being, uh, the rest, uh, were being slow to be approved and the, the education and awareness campaigns weren't, weren't coming out. Of course, in 1990 Bush, you know, he was up for, well, it was midterm elections in 1990. He'd just uh, been elected in 1988. Uh, the economy was heading into a recession, and Bush uh, was about to go back on his no, no new, read my lips, no new taxes, taxes thing. So that was news that was starting to s- circulate. And I mentioned all that because it's like, okay, well, uh, you know, it would have been historic for him to, you know, come to the event, but he was also thinking about his political mm-hmm. uh, so uh, a future, yeah, which is why he base, was yeah. aligning himself with this senator. So, um, like I said, June the 20th was the opening day. Uh, and so while the conference was opening, he was singing the praises of Jesse Helms, a, a senator from North Carolina. So the conference opens. It's attended by 12,000 12, delegates. Uh, so 12,000 people from 85 countries uh, are at this conference um, recognizing, you know, this is a, you know, becoming a big thing. You're getting a lot of yeah. attention uh, on, this, on this crisis. And the leader of the free world decides, no, I'm not going to attend this event again. I'm going to go to this political event for Jesse Helms. The purpose of the conference is basically to inform the attendees and, you know, later the, the, the broader population and the latest knowledge about AIDS, uh, promote education and awareness, and make the case for funding. Um, they were one of the, the, the topics where there's not enough funding coming from the government, specifically the U.S. government, to address AIDS and, you know, build awareness about it. Uh, so they were advocating to double the funding from $200 million to $400 million. 
the AIDS crisis, they uh, acknowledged that it was, again, not leveling off. And in fact, AIDS was moving into new parts of society. So women were showing increase in infection rates, adolescents and drug users that weren't, uh, that weren't uh, drug users that were non-intravenous. And so, and then they were also talked about the federal government, how they were blocking uh, and banning funding for programs about AIDS education and prevention. Uh, and just the, the Bush administration was slow to act. It was a fairly harmonious uh, conference until the, the last day, which I'll talk about in a sec. But wh what's the significance about Jesse Helms, right? So you can go to a senator. It's just a political event. I mean, it sounds par for a conservative a president to skip a AIDS conference with a bunch of, you know, that's centered on a disease that's labeled as a gay disease, mm -hmm. right? Recognizing Ryan White had come out, you know, his case had been very public and as well as a, n a number of other folks. But Jesse Helms was a senator from North Carolina, uh, known as the beacon of conservatism, and uh, he often referred to homosexuals as perverted human beings. And so he was now no friend mm, so of. He knows our work. Yes, he was yeah. no friend of the really the, the gay community. <laughs> uh, he led the fight against the type of explicit AIDS prevention materials that the health experts were advocating for. Um, he pro uh, uh, advocated for uh, provisions and and legislation that prohibited funding on AIDS programs that would promote, encourage, uh, and condone homosexual activities and drug use. So he didn't want anything, any AIDS, if, if we were going to inform the public about AIDS, you couldn't talk about homosexual, uh, so homosexual activities or drug use, because that was immoral, right? Because oh it's a beacon of conservatism. So he initially... So that's the reason it spread. <laughs> right. Ignore the problem. Yeah, exactly. Which is what many conservatives do about... Uh, police brutality, racism, violence racism. right now, racism, all that, ignore it. And yeah. Well, he initially proposed that no money be used for material or activities that would promote, encourage, or condone homosexuality, illegal drug use, or even sexual activity outside marriage, right? So just completely ignore this is how you, you know, uh, these are ways you get uh, HIV, AIDS. Uh, re some of this, what was inspiring his, his um, uh lack of support for AIDS funding and his crusade against the the perverts that we are was he caught wind of some materials from the gay health, uh, gay men's health crisis which was a comic book that distrib uh, they had a comic book that distributed so gay men's health crisis I think we've talked about before they're a group out of New York who who uh, uh, started to uh, fight you know, raise awareness about HIV and AIDS so there was a comic book that they were distributing uh, that uh, that had sexually graphic illustrations and uh, what Jesse mm -hmm. Helms said were perpetuating the AIDS problem um, he said that the, the the group was getting federal funding and you know he said this is not how taxpayer dollars should be spent so much like this you know all the controversy around Planned Parenthood it, you know our tax dollars are not going to pay for abortions they they do you know, pay or historically paid because I don't know where the the the, the funding um, argument is with Planned Parenthood. But so I guess the gay men's health crisis would get funding, but they weren't using that funding to you know to develop these comic books. They were getting yeah. funding to from to do that from other venues. But this was kind of informing our our the perversion that us gay men had. Uh, it was also Helms uh, who authored the U.S. travel restrictions on foreigners uh, that were infected with mm -hmm. AIDS virus, So, which that was in place. I mean, all of his doing was in place until 2010 when uh, Obama, it was started by uh, uh, W. Uh, Bush, but Obama solidified the you know, lifting that restriction that was in place. But he, he it's Helms who, again, blocked funding yeah. to, for education and awareness and prevented uh, or uh, uh, 
advocated for travel restrictions. So he got that passed. So, so when I say he goes to you know George H W yeah, Bush, yeah, a political statement, right? Yes. It's like not only am I not attending this conference, it's I'm going to double down on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so in full transparency, you know, Helms did uh, before as he was retiring in 2003, did say his conscience was answerable to God, and so uh, he he decided to become an advocate for HIV funding. Uh, so he, he put in a proposal in one of his last acts of as a legislature uh, to uh, put in 500 million dollars. Uh, in funding for AIDS, uh, which he says he was inspired by, again, his conscience and knowing that he was 81 at the time and soon going to have to reconcile his, his record yeah. with God, uh, but also inspired by the work of um, Bono from U2 and Franklin Graham's support for uh, for AIDS work. But uh, he was not an, any fan of the gays. It was not a turn mm-hmm. of heart uh, towards homosexuals. No. He said he did not support the homosexual lifestyle, and he said that was basically the cause of spread of AIDS in the country and spending AIDS on research. So the funding he was proposing was overseas and not in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So he said it's still really yeah. Um, he said you know why spend money on this disease that's being you know per, uh, perpetuated by gays when we could study we could spend money on studying things like heart problems and other medical defects on humanity. Well, he had a heart defect. <laughs> yeah. So yes, he was heartless. Um, but you know, so that said, you know, here's Helms's record and Bush's. Uh, you know, saying that Helms needs to be reelected. His part, his reelection isn't a partisan crusade, but it's a national necessity. So these are the words that he's he's uh, he's spreading while uh, while this AIDS conference is in place. He's talking about how Helms he's a visionary who alters the tide, and uh, you know he he said news was uh, so this is the thing. So again, he's causing he's saying that his election Helms is, needs to be reelected out of necessity, and Helms is a visionary. So saying all these words while this conference is going on. I mentioned the conference was very, you know, fairly harmonious uh, until that last day. So Bush did send someone to speak on behalf of the administration. Uh, So the conference invited uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, Louis Sullivan. Uh, He was uh, one of the last speakers at the conference. He stepped up to the microphone and then was immediately drowned out by protesters shouting, shame, shame, shame. Uh, They were blowing whistles and air horns and all sorts of things that were drowning out his speech. Um, of course, this caused controversy amongst, um, you know, the, the conference attendees. Um, there was this debate. had, And so this, this, this uh, protesting was, uh, was done by the group ACT UP. And so mm. this was the, the um, I won't say militant, but the more aggressive wing of the LGBT community. Uh, ACT UP, if you want to compare uh, ACT UP to anything that uh, is on the, the civil rights movement, they're saying, ACT UP would be equivalent to uh, the Malcolm X wing of the yeah. African-American you know, civil rights movement versus like the, the quilts, you know, that foundation that's doing that. Uh, that's more like the, the, uh, uh, the Martin Luther King. So ACT UP, very uh, vocal in terms of what they were trying to do. So the debate was, you know, had ACT UP done too much um, by infringing on Sullivan's right to speak or to be heard? Um, or were they simply causing call, calling you know attention to the fact that the Bush administration was not you know present really 
and, and rather than be present, it's like I said, it's not like they just decided, no, I'm not going to attend, but they decided to go speak yeah, yeah. in favor of a senator that was an enemy of the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, you know, some of the criticism, though, is like, you've, now you've made all this stink act up by um, running over uh, this, uh, this guy's speech. You basically gave this faceless bureaucrat, you made him into a martyr. And of mm. course, you know, the Bush administration seized on that. You, you had uh, Sullivan who was saying, these protesters were un-American, and I will not work with any of those individuals. So, it, mm. you know, the tide's changing, right? But go ahead. I don't understand why people say protesting is un-American. It, it is it's fundamentally That's American. That's how we started out. Freedom of speech, yeah. Right. You, and you, I mean, you even had folks from the LGBT community saying, so Steve Morin, he was a, a openly gay aide of uh, Nancy Pelosi at the time. Uh, he said, you know, the protesters, you know, the strategy was wrong. It's a First, Amendment, a First Amendment issue to let people speak and be heard. So, I mean, he also said, look, the Bush administration is not in the right position either, but, you know, we need to have a productive dialogue versus just shouting people down. He's like, that's not productive. Um, of course, you know, the activists... And the folks in favor of what ACT UP did said that they helped spur action. It's what it's what the uh, it's, it's by the activists that things get you know attention gets paid to some of these issues and action happens. So they're saying like because of some of the things that ACT UP had done in the past, the National Institute of Health helped create uh, they expanded their access programs uh, to experimental drugs uh, for AIDS and H- HIV patients. So they're like the activists do good work. Even a popular name here. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's quoted in uh, one of the articles saying, mm-hmm. hey, when it comes to clinical trials, some of the activists are better informed than many of the scientists, and scientists don't have a lock on all this stuff. So yep. the activists, he's saying, play a role in all that. Um, you know, again, it was, um, you know, a lot of folks, though, will say that ACT UP, despite being disruptive, they actually draw a lot of good attention to to some of the, the issues at hand. Um, you know, and, and the lobbyists even say, hey, look, it's great for us to have ACT UP because they show the extreme yeah. way we can go. And they raise awareness. Right, and that we can't settle for compromise. And they put, they're saying, as a lobbyist, they put me on the on the spot to say, we need to, we can't just settle for, you know, uh, an inch. We need the full mile because people are dying. And most of the folks are saying, okay, what are the, you know, who's going to turn against us? I mean, you're saying we're going to lose support, but who's supporting us now? I mean, tens of thousands of people are dying yeah. and no one's here uh, um, helping us. So that's, um, you know, I think a, a, it was a milestone event in the in the LGBT community in the fight against AIDS and just marking another another moment where you had the lack of support from people in power from the Bush administration, uh, which a, a lot of times we like to look back more favorably when we compare him against you know Donald Trump. But what guy wasn't perfect? I mean George W. Bush, H. W. Yeah. So, I mean, there were a lot of things that were anti-LGBTQ in terms of what he was doing. Uh, so, I, I mean, wasn't a friend, at least politically of ours. Maybe personally he had gay friends, and I think Barbara Bush did too. But it's like, well, when it came time to count, when it yeah, mattered, exactly. you were more worried about re- re-election. Well, than and the Republican base never trusted him because they thought he was too moderate. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. Like I said, I thought it was a... Uh, an interesting event. That's for first one I read on the topic. I was like, well, what's the story here? I was like, so what? And then I reminded myself what a awful person Jesse Helms is. And so even though there's many good stories out there about Jesse Helms, how he mm. adopted two kids and uh, that he, he met. And so and then he provided he's done some good work. But, uh, you know, Jesse Helms is a, one of those um, 
uh, Southern Republicans who were racist, uh, prob- but changed some of their views over over the years because politically it made sense yeah. to do that, right? So, um, so I mean, can you separate politics from personal? I don't know. I mean, politics is a business to some extent, well, but he's not cute. I'll tell you that. But but when you're in power, and, <laughs> and you don't use that to support the you know the will, not the, even the will of the people, but but what's right. Just what infuriates infuriates me about the Republicans now. I mean, they're just totally turning their back back on on the American people by and like our institution of yeah. like democracy and yeah well you know why they didn't vote hillary into office they didn't want a third bush in the oval office mm. <laughs> <All right. laughs> on that note on that note, candle candle <laughs> wow wow <laughs> i got nothing to say to that so that's um, a candle's way of being like wrap this shit up yeah <laughs> i don't <laughs> i know how to make him speechless <laughs> I was like, oh, what did you say to that you got you can't talk about you, the bush you can't say anything to that i'm just like oh, well bush. here we go that's my bisexualness talking uh all right well thanks everybody for for listening to our podcast and kikiing with us forgive the delay but we are getting it to you in real time so for once our kiki is not going to be two weeks late in terms of what we're talking about can't say that for the next episode we're about to record in about an hour so uh that'll be the following week so that one will be dated just like normal um, a special thank you to our guy who keeps our sound in check. That's Spencer. He's about to push this into, into production so you guys can listen to it. Uh, don't forget to subscribe so you can hear future episodes. You can visit our website at letstalkaboutgaystuff.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Let's Talk About Gay Stuff and on Twitter at Talk Gay Stuff. Leave us a review. Uh, tell us what you think. Give us five stars. We'll, we're down with that. Um, if you don't want to do it in public, you can drop us a line at Let's Talk About Gay Stuff uh, at gmail.com. Also, give a listen i mentioned spencer to our sister podcast on the listen works network our spooby podcast spencer and chris putting out all the spoops and the poops wait the Ew. spoops <laughs> the spoops they're putting out them. the spoops and uh Roops. they also you know all stars five of rupaul's drag race is airing i'm not plugging them but i am plugging uh chris and spencer's uh roofie podcast well you are plugging spencer mm, i was gonna say where <laughs> they recap where they recap uh, Not episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race. So Not a Democrat with an intern. Oh, jeez. <laughs> exactly. All right. With, with that, uh, we're here. We're queer. Get used to it. <laughs>